Section 18 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 10, European Leaders, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. William Ewart Gladstone, Part 1. 1809 to 1898. The Enfranchisement of the People. It may seem presumptuous for me at the present time to write on Gladstone, whose public life presents so many sides, concerning which there is anything but unanimity of opinion a man still in full life and likely to remain so for years to come a giant so strong intellectually and physically as to exercise without office a prodigious influence in national affairs by the sole force of genius and character combined but how can i present the statesman of the nineteenth century without including him the nestor among political personages who for forty years has taken an important part in the government of england this remarkable man like canning peel and macaulay was precocious in his attainments at school and college especially at oxford which has produced more than her share of the great men who have controlled thought and action in england during the period since eighteen twenty but precocity is not always the presage of future greatness there are more remarkable boys than remarkable men in england college honors may have more influence in advancing the fortunes of a young man than in this country but I seldom have known valedictorians who have come up to popular expectations, and most of them, though always respectable, have remained in comparative obscurity. Like the statesmen to whom I have alluded, Gladstone sprang up from the middle ranks, although his father, a princely Liverpool merchant of Scottish descent, became a baronet by force of his wealth, character, and influence. Seeing the extraordinary talents of his third son, William Ewart, sir john gladstone spared neither pains nor money on his education sending him to eton in eighteen twenty one at the age of twelve where he remained till eighteen twenty seven learning chiefly latin and greek here he was the companion and friend of many men who afterward became powerful forces in english life here he was the companion and friend of many men who afterward became powerful forces in english life political literary and ecclesiastical at the age of seventeen we find him writing letters to arthur hallam on politics and literature and his old schoolfellows testify to his great influence among them for purity humanity and nobility of character while he was noted for his aptness in letters and skill in debate in eighteen twenty seven the boy was entrusted to the care of dr turner afterward bishop of calcutta under whom he learned something besides latin and greek perhaps indirectly in the way of ethics and theology and other things which go to the formation of character at the age of twenty he entered christ church at oxford the most aristocratic of colleges with more attainments than most scholars reach at thirty and was graduated in eighteen thirty one double first class distinguished not only for his scholarship but for his power of debate in the union society throwing in his lot with tories and high churchmen who as he afterward confesses did not set a due value on the imperishable and inestimable principles of human liberty with strong religious tendencies and convictions he contemplated taking orders in the church but his father saw things differently and thus with academic prejudices which most graduates have to unlearn he went abroad in eighteen thirty two to complete the education of an english gentleman spending most of his time in italy and sicily those eternally interesting countries to the scholar and the artist whose wonders can scarcely be exaggerated affording a perpetual charm and study if one can ignore popular degradation superstition unthrift and indifference to material and moral progress 
he who enjoys italy must live in the past or in the realm of art or in the sanctuaries where priests hide themselves from the light of what is most valuable in civilization and most ennobling in human consciousness mr gladstone returned to england in the most interesting and exciting period of her political history since the days of cromwell soon after the great reform bill had been passed which changed the principle of representation in parliament and opened the way for other necessary reforms his personal eclat and his powerful friends gave him an almost immediate entrance into the house of commons as member for newark the electors knew but little about him they only knew that he was supported by the duke of newcastle and preponderating tory interests and were carried away by his youthful eloquence those silvery tones which nature gave and that strange fascination which comes from magnetic powers the ancient said that the poet is born and the orator is made it appears to me that a man stands but little chance of oratorical triumphs who is not gifted by nature with a musical voice and a sympathetic electrical force which no effort can acquire on the twenty ninth of january eighteen thirty three at the age of twenty four gladstone entered upon his memorable parliamentary career during the ministry of lord gray and his maiden speech fluent modest and earnest was in the course of the debate on the proposed abolition of slavery in the british colonies it was in reply to an attack made upon the management of his father's estates in the treatment of slaves in demerara he deprecated cruelty and slavery alike but maintained that emancipation should be gradual and after due preparation and insisting also that slaves were private property he demanded that the interests of planters should be duly regarded if emancipation should take place this was in accordance with justice as viewed by enlightened englishmen generally negro emancipation was soon after decreed all negroes born after august first eighteen thirty four as well as those then six years of age were to be free and the remainder were after a kind of apprenticeship of six years to be set at liberty the sum of twenty million pounds was provided by law as a compensation to the slave owners one of the noblest acts which parliament ever passed and one of which the english nation has never ceased to boast among the other measures to which the reform parliament gave its attention in eighteen thirty three was that relating to the temporalities of the irish church by which the number of bishops was reduced from twenty-two to twelve with a corresponding reduction of their salaries an annual tax was also imposed on all livings above three hundred pounds to be appropriated to the augmentation of small benefices mr gladstone was too conservative to approve of this measure and he made a speech against it in eighteen thirty four the reform ministry went out of power having failed to carry everything before them as they had anticipated and not having produced that general prosperity which they had promised the people were still discontented trade still languished and pauperism increased rather than diminished under the new tory minister headed by sir robert peel mr gladstone became a junior lord of the treasury his great abilities were already recognized and the premier wanted his services as pitt wanted those of canning before he was known to fame shortly after parliament assembled in february eighteen thirty five mr gladstone was made under-secretary for the colonies a very young man for such an office but the tory ministry was short-lived and the whigs soon returned to power under lord melbourne during this administration until the death of william the fourth in eighteen thirty seven there was no display of power or eloquence in parliament by the member for newark of sufficient importance to be here noted except perhaps his opposition to a bill for the rearrangement of church rates 
as a conservative and a high churchman gladstone stood aloof from those who would lay unhallowed hands on the sacred ark of ecclesiasticism and here at last he has always been consistent with himself from first to last he has been the zealous defender and admirer of the english church and one of its devoutest members taking the deepest interest in everything which concerns its doctrines its rituals and its connection with the state at times apparently forgetting politics to come to its support in essays which show a marvelous knowledge of both theology and ecclesiastical history we cannot help thinking that he would have reached the highest dignities as a clergyman and perhaps have been even more famous as a bishop than as a statesman in the parliament which assembled after queen victoria's accession to the throne in eighteen thirty seven the voice of gladstone was heard in nearly every important discussion but the speech which most prominently brought him into public notice and gave him high rank as a parliamentary orator was that in eighteen thirty eight in reference to west india emancipation the evils of the negro apprenticeship system which was to expire in eighteen forty had been laid before the house of lords by the ex-chancellor brougham with his usual fierceness and probable exaggeration and when the subject came up for discussion in the house of commons gladstone opposed immediate abolition which lord brougham had advocated showing by a great array of facts that the relation between masters and negroes was generally much better than it had been represented but he was on the unpopular side of the question and his speech excited admiration without producing conviction successful only as a vigorous argument and a brilliant oratorical display the apprenticeship was cut short and immediate abolition of slavery decreed at that time gladstone's appearance and manners were much in his favor his countenance was mild and pleasant his eyes were clear and quick his eyebrows were dark and prominent his gestures varied but not violent his jet-black hair was parted from his crown to his brow his voice was peculiarly musical and his diction was elegant and easy without giving the appearance of previous elaboration how far his language and thoughts were premeditated i will not undertake to say daniel webster once declared that there was no such thing as extempore speaking a saying not altogether correct but in the main confirmed by many great orators who confessed to laborious preparation for their speech-making and by the fact that many of our famous after-dinner speakers have been known to send their speeches to the press before they were delivered the case of demosthenes would seem to indicate the necessity of the most careful study and preparation in order to make a truly great speech however gifted an orator may be and those who like the late henry ward beecher have astonished their hearers by their ready utterances have generally mastered certain lines of fact and principle of knowledge which they have at command and which with native power and art of expression they present in fresh forms and new combinations they do not so much add new stores of fact to the kaleidoscope of oratory they place the familiar ones in new positions and produce new pictures ad infinitum sometimes a genius urged by a great impulse may dash out in an untried course of thought but this is not always a safe venture the next effort of the kind may prove a failure no man can be sure of himself or his ground without previous and patient labor except in reply to an antagonist and when familiar with his subject that was the power of fox and pitt what gave charm to the speeches of peel and gladstone in their prime was the new matter they introduced before debate began and this was the result of laborious study to attack such matter with wit and sarcasm is one thing to originate it is quite another anybody can criticize the most beautiful picture or the grandest structure but to paint the one or erect the other 
hic labor hoc opus est one of the grandest speeches ever made for freshness and force was daniel repster's reply to hayne but the peroration was written and committed to memory while the substance of it had been in his thoughts for half a winter and his mind was familiar with the general subject the great orator is necessarily an artist as much as pascal was in his pensees and his fame will rest perhaps more on his art than on his matter since the art is inimitable and peculiar while the matter is subject to the conditions of future unknown progressive knowledge perhaps the most effective speech of modern times was the short address of abraham lincoln at gettysburg but this was simply the expression of the gathered forces of his whole political life in the month of july eighteen thirty seven mr gladstone was married to miss catherine glynn daughter of sir stephen richard glynn of hardowin castle in flintshire wales a marriage which proved eminently happy eight children have been the result of this union of whom but one has died all the others have turned out well as the saying is though no one has reached distinguished eminence it would seem that mr gladstone occupying for forty years so superb a social and public station has not been ambitious for the worldly advancement of his children nor has he been stained by nepotism in pushing on their fortunes the eldest son was a member of parliament the second became a clergyman and the eldest daughter married a clergyman in a prominent position as headmaster of wellington college it would be difficult to say when the welfare of the church and the triumph of theological truth have not received a great share of mr gladstone's thoughts and labors at an early period of his parliamentary career he wrote an elaborate treatise on the state in its relation to the church it is said that sir robert peel threw the book down on the floor exclaiming that it was a pity so able a man should jeopardize his political future by writing such trash but it was of sufficient importance to furnish macaulay a subject for one of his most careful essays in which however though respectful in tone patronizing rather than eulogistic he showed but little sympathy with the author he pointed out many defects which the critical and religious world has sustained in the admirable article which mr gladstone wrote on lord macaulay himself for one of the principal reviews not many years ago he paid back in courteous language and even under the conventional form of panegyric in which one great man naturally speaks of another a still more searching and trenchant criticism on the writings of the eminent historian gladstone shows and shows clearly and conclusively the utter inability of macaulay to grasp subjects of a spiritual and subjective character especially exhibited in his notice of the philosophy of bacon he shows that this historian excels only in painting external events and the outward acts and peculiarities of the great characters of history and even then only with strong prejudices and considerable exaggerations however careful he is in sustaining his position by recorded facts in which he never makes an error to the subjective mind of gladstone with his interest in theological subjects macaulay was neither profound nor accurate in his treatment of philosophical and psychological questions for which indeed he had but little taste such men as pascal leibnitz calvin locke he lets alone to discuss the great actors in political history like warren hastings pitt harley but in his painting of such characters he stands preeminent over all modern writers gladstone does justice to macaulay's vast learning his transcendent memory and his matchless rhetoric making the heaviest subjects glow with life and power affecting compositions which will live for style alone for which in some respects he is unapproachable indeed i cannot conceive of two great contemporary statesmen more unlike in their mental structure and more antagonistic to their general views than gladstone and macaulay 
and unlike also in their style the treatise on state and church on which gladstone exhibits so much learning to me is heavy vague hazy and hard to read the subject however has but little interest to an american and is doubtless much more highly appreciated by english students especially those of the great universities whom it more directly concerns it is the argument of a young oxford scholar for the maintenance of a church establishment is full of ecclesiastical lore assuming that one of the chief ends of government is the propagation of religious truth a ground utterly untenable according to the universal opinion of people in this country whether churchman or layman catholic or protestant conservative or liberal on the fall of the whig government in eighteen forty one succeeded by that of sir robert peel mr gladstone was appointed vice-president of the board of trade and master of the mint and naturally became more prominent as a parliamentary debater yet not a parliamentary leader but he was one of the most efficient of the premier's lieutenants a tried and faithful follower a disciple indeed as was peel himself of canning and canning of pitt he addressed the house in all the important debates on railways on agricultural interests on the abolition of the corn laws on the dissenters chapel bills on sugar duties a conservative of conservatives yet showing his devotion to the cause of justice in everything except justice to the catholics in ireland he was opposed to the grant to the maynooth college and in consequence resigned his office when the decision of the government was made known a rare act of that conscientiousness for which from first to last he has been preeminently distinguished in all political as well as religious matters his resignation of office left him free to express his views and he disclaimed in the name of law the constitution and the history of the country the voting of money to restore and strengthen the roman catholic church of ireland indifference to sir robert peel and the general cause of education his opposition was not bitter or persistent and the progressive views which have always marked his career led him to support the premier in his repeal of the corn laws he having been like his chief converted to the free trade doctrines of cobden but the retirement of such prominent men as the duke of buckley and lord stanley of alderley from his ministry as protectionists led to its breaking up in eighteen forty six and an attempt to form a new one under lord john russell which failed and sir robert peel resumed direction of a government pledged to repeal the corn laws of eighteen fifteen as the duke of newcastle was a zealous protectionist under whose influence mr gladstone had been elected member of parliament the latter now resigned his seat as member for newark and consequently remained without a seat in that memorable session of eighteen forty six which repealed the corn laws the ministry of sir robert peel though successful in passing the most important bill since that of parliamentary reform in eighteen thirty two was doomed as we have already noted in the lecture on that great leader it fell on the irish question and lord john russell became the head of the government in the meantime mr gladstone was chosen to represent the university of oxford in parliament one of the most distinguished honors which he ever received and which he duly prized as the champion of the english church represented by the university and as one of its greatest scholars he richly deserved the coveted prize on the accidental death of sir robert peel in eighteen fifty the conservative party became disintegrated and mr gladstone held himself aloof from both whigs and tories learning wisdom from sir james graham one of the best educated and most accomplished statesmen of the day and devoting himself to the study of parliamentary tactics and of all great political questions it was then that in the interval of public business he again visited italy in the winter of eighteen fifty to fifty one this time not for mere amusement and recreation but for the health of a beloved daughter while in naples he was led to examine its prisons with philanthropic aim 
and to study the general policy and condition of the Neapolitan government. The result was his famous letters to Lord Aberdeen on the awful despotism under which the kingdom of the two Sicilies groaned, where over twenty thousand political prisoners were incarcerated, and one half of the deputies were driven into exile in defiance of all law, where the prisons were dens of filth and horror, and all sorts of unjust charges were fabricated in order to get rid of inconvenient persons. I have read nothing from the pen of Mr. Gladstone superior in the way of style to these letters, earnest and straightforward, almost fierce in their invective, reminding one in many respects of Brougham's defense of Queen Caroline, but with a greater array of facts, so clearly and forcibly put as not only to produce conviction, but to kindle wrath. The government of Naples had sworn to maintain a free constitution, but had disgracefully and without compunction violated every one of its conditions, and perpetuated cruelties and injustices which would have appalled the judges of imperial Rome, and defended them by a casuistry which surpassed in its insult to the human understanding that of the priests of the Spanish Inquisition. End of section 18